The sermon today is from Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10, through chapter 6, verse 6. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 10, through 6, verse 6. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them, and what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture." And he is the father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not what much remember the days of his lifetime because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial... I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity, and it goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place." Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that there is truth revealed to us that we can go to every day and read to know you and to know your will. We ask for Kyle as he preaches now to us that you would fill him with your spirit that you would guide the words of his mouth. As we hear this morning, may you soften our hearts to accept your word as truth, 
May you give us faith to believe it and grace to put it into practice. So help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. The door of Scrooge's counting house was open that he might keep his eye upon his clerk, Bob Cratchit. Scrooge had a very small fire, but the clerk's fire was so much smaller that it looked like one coal. But he couldn't replenish it, for Scrooge kept the coal box in his own room. A Merry Christmas, Uncle. God save you, cried a cheerful voice. It was the voice of Scrooge's nephew. Bah, said Scrooge, humbug. Christmas, a humbug, uncle, said Scrooge's nephew. You don't mean that, I'm sure. I do, said Scrooge. Merry Christmas. What right have you to be merry? What reason have you to be merry? You're poor enough. Come then, returned his nephew gaily. What right have you to be dismal? What reason have you to be morose? You're rich enough. Ebenezer Scrooge is our perennial example and reminder of what we read in in chapter 10, or in verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Uh, What the preacher, the writer of Ecclesiastes is is helping us to see really is, is fulfilled in that life of Ebenezer Scrooge. Uh, the book of Ecclesiastes was written to challenge how we think about what we value in life. Last week, we were challenged about the way that we worship, to worship wisely. And now, the preacher turns his attention to wealth that we would hold wealth and possessions wisely and that we would consider the role that they have in our life. I think most of us would recognize that love for money is not a good thing. And yet, if we're honest, we'd have to say, but we like it a lot. And so, what should our understanding be uh, from knowing that this love of money, like an Ebenezer Scrooge, is a life that is not pleasing and honorable, and yet money is a big part of life. We need it. We want to use it well. And what does it mean to do so? And those are the issues that the writer of Ecclesiastes is confronting in in these verses. So we start out with this warning about loving money. And what does that mean? What is love of money? Well, we know that love is more than feelings and emotion. Uh, Love is what drives the the actions of our life. And if we're looking at a, a biblical description of love, love is a sacrificial desire 
to care for someone or something. When we love someone, we are stepping forward and putting a priority on the one we love to to care for them. And other distractions are put aside so that we can give attention to that person, that need. And so if we are to love neighbor, we are making sacrifices to serve our neighbor and to take care of them. And if we are loving money, then we are sacrificing other things to make money the priority of our life. And so the love of money we're being warned against is when love takes on the great priority of life and that that love is what is driving our priorities and it is what is pushing other things out of the way. Because what we love does lead us. That's why the Bible in the Old and New Testament tells us that the greatest of all commandments is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And we're told by the Apostle Paul that if we do love God and neighbor with all of our heart, if we truly are loving them, then all of the other laws of God will fall into place and we'll find ourselves carrying out the law of God because love is the sum, the direction of all that God's Word gives us to do. This is also why Jesus warns us in the Sermon on the Mount against having two loves, two masters. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, Jesus tells us no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, it's interesting in Jesus warning us about having two loves, two masters, he does not make the choice that we have as God and Satan. Instead, he says, the choice is between God and money. No Christian is going to choose Satan. And Satan is too subtle to suggest that to us. Satan never comes to a believer and says, pick me, Satan, follow me. What he does is point our attention to anything else other than God and say, look at this, follow this. And money is what allows us to do that. Money is what allows us to pursue the many things that Satan wants to distract us and get our attention off of God to pursue. How we use our money and our possessions represents what we value. How we use our possessions reveals 
what it is that we love above all else. Jesus shows us how to test what it is that we love. Because sometimes we're not fully sure. We may think, well, it's not that I love money, but just as important. And we're not always able to test our own values well. And Jesus, in what he said in Matthew 6, 24, helps us to see how we do test what it is we love When he says that you will be devoted to one and despise the other. He lets us know that part of the test of seeing what it is we love is what makes us resentful. If we have a true love in our heart, we will resent something that tries to intrude on that love and take us from it. And so if we love money more than we think. If we love possessions, maybe more than we think, we will resent when it is suggested that God should have a bigger role over what we possess. That will be offensive to us because it is infringing upon what is our great love. That's why it's important for the church and for one another to, to challenge ourselves about how we give. Now, we all have heard and seen uh, shameful uh, people who call themselves Christians, leaders, who are seeking to enrich themselves by teaching that just takes it from everyone else. And we, we see that, and their emphasis is on money in a way that we know is not godly. And we certainly don't want to sound like that at all. And yet, it is important that we are regularly thinking about and challenging our own hearts about our giving. Uh, because we do have a responsibility toward the church and one another with what we own, uh, but also because giving is the antidote to materialism. And I think we all recognize that in our culture, materialism is something that is always pressing itself against us. And we all have found ourselves at times getting caught up in something that interests us and getting the, the newer edition and more of it and bigger, and we find ourselves getting caught up in it, and we know we need influences that stop that. Our commitment to always keep God first in our giving and to be generous toward God and generous toward one another is what infringes upon greed and materialism. And so this is an issue that is important to us. It helps us to fulfill our responsibilities to the church, and it helps us to look at our priorities toward God and and what it is that we love. Now, we can have wealth. We can have lots of possessions without loving them. Uh, There are actually people who have lots of children who don't love them. I mean, even that is possible as hard as it is to believe. 
But people can have possessions and have a, a healthy perspective. They don't love it more than people or God. They're using it well. The Bible's concern here is not about our having possessions. Uh, the Bible's concern is what is our perspective toward the possessions that we do have. We all have some measure of it. And what is our perspective about what we do have and about what we want? And yet, even though there's nothing wrong with having possessions and even a lot of them, we do see from the passage that possessing wealth does bring added risks to our perspective. There is something about having a lot which makes us vulnerable, and that's a big part of what the preacher is bringing before us. These are warnings that we all need to keep aware of because these are risks that come with the more that you have. And just to have a right perspective, everyone here is wealthy. Everyone here is wealthy. And if you're thinking, not at all, it's simply who you're comparing yourself to. Uh, you can compare yourself to people who are more wealthy than you. They have multiple homes, multiple expensive vehicles, a lavish lifestyle compared to yours. They are wealthy. But if you compare yourself to the overwhelming majority of people in the world, if you compare yourself to perhaps five billion other people, five billion other people, you are wealthy. And I bring that up because it, it reminds us that these warnings are not just for those people. This is for us. Years ago, uh, I took a pastor friend in Belarus to dinner. And it kind of surprised me when I found out it was the first time he'd ever eaten in a restaurant. It wouldn't have occurred to him to eat in a restaurant. He, he had no money for something like that. That's what wealthy people did. So the next time you're eating McNuggets or a nice omelet with rye toast and some scrapple on the side, you're eating a wealthy meal. And that pastor in Belarus, who never had money to even consider eating at a restaurant, and compared to us would seem poor, he is wealthy compared to the majority people in the world who live without sanitation, without water, without knowing where their next meal will be, without heat or air conditioning, without a door, without windows, without any confidence that tomorrow they will even be able to fill their stomach. And I say nothing this to put any of us down. It's just that we would see the reality of what wealth is 
and the warnings that we need to be aware of, the passages for us. And so there are six warnings we'll go through fairly quickly that are attached to having wealth. And so if you take notes, there's six of them, and uh, maybe none of you do, but it just makes me feel good to think someone does, because that means you're paying attention. So even if you just take paper and hold it there and don't write, I'm thinking, wow, they're taking notes. They're going, did you hear that? Write it down. That was good. So when you take notes, the the person preaching is, wow, they're actually hearing what I'm saying. So, number one, love for money, verse 10, is always an unsatisfying love. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. No matter how much you have, it will never satisfy your soul. It will never be enough. John Rockefeller, who decades ago was the wealthiest man in the world, was asked, how much is enough money? And he famously replied, just a little bit more. Now, if the wealthiest man in the world was honest enough to say, no matter how much he had, he always, he wanted a little bit more. It, it was never enough for him when he had wealth to have anything he wanted. Uh, are we going to be different? If we love money, are we ever going to be satisfied with it? Will we we'll ever have enough? And the scripture says no. We were made, our our soul was made by God to enjoy all that was created. And so God filled the world with his goodness, and he means for us to enjoy that. However, our fulfillment is meant to only be in the creator. We find joy in what is created, but fulfillment is meant to be found in one place alone, our God who made us. And when anything else is put up into the place of this person or this experience or these possessions or position, this will make life fulfilling, that never works because God has been pushed off where he belongs. And things that can bring fulfillment don't fully fulfill us. They weren't meant to. Second, warnings attached to having wealth. Wealth and increased possessions add to the complexities of life. So we want more, but having more does add more complexity to life. Verse 11, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes, to see all that's eating away what they have. When we have much, there are more demands on us. We have all sorts of responsibilities for what we own. We have to take care of everything. We have to fix it and maintain it. There is the famous saying of the the two 
greatest days for a person who has a boat is the day they bought it and the day they sell it. We can think it would be wonderful to have a vacation house. But then we have to do all the responsibilities we have for a regular house. It's much better to be friends with people who have vacation houses. Because I am not against vacation houses. If there are no vacation houses, then we can't get invited to them. So we want vacation homes. But recognize, you're going to have all of the responsibilities for that on top of all that you have for the home you've already got. That home just doesn't take care of itself. It isn't self-renewing. It's decaying every day and calling out for more money. The more we have, the more our expenses go up. So we think, no, if, if my income came up to here, that would cover everything I want and need. Well, it would for three days. But then you're starting to see things that you never thought of before because they weren't possible. But now you're a little bit closer and you're, you know what? A little bit more. And, and then I could have that. The Hunt family is a famous ultra-wealthy family in Texas. Uh, the Hunt family was the inspiration for the, the old show Dallas. And there were uh, three Hunt brothers, all very wealthy. One of them was asked, is it true, Mr. Hunt, that you make $1 million a day? And Mr. Hunt responded, son, I'd starve on $1 million a day. The reality was, his expenses had grown so much that a million dollars a day couldn't make it work. He needed more than that just to pay the bills. Because it is never enough. And it just adds complexity to life. Number three, having much wealth often can lead to hoarding our wealth. Verse 13, there is a grievous evil I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. Notice the grievous evil isn't that someone had much. It's that they kept it to their own hurt. They hoarded it. Because when we have much and then we want to protect it and keep it, we, we can fall into hoarding to protect it rather than using it as it was meant to be when God gave it to us. Number four, wealth is easily lost, which makes it a poor source of security. Verse 14, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. He is son of a, a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. Nothing to pass on. Wealth gives the appearance of bringing security. 
when I have enough wealth, I can take care of all of the fearful things out there. And if we think it brings security, then we are, we're tempted to lean on it more and more. And yet wealth can easily be lost and it is not a good foundation for making life secure. Number five, all wealth is left behind. Verse 15, as he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and he shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. No matter how much we have, it all stays here when we leave this world. I've seen people put all sorts of things in caskets. And not, not one thing benefited those who are in eternity. And so how much value should we place on things that we already know are all temporary? Number six, money cannot solve life's greatest problems. Verse 17, Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness in much vexation and sickness and anger. Speaking of the person who has a lot, the person who loves money and is collecting a lot. And it says they spend all their days in vexation, fear, anger. I would ask you, what can having a lot of money stop? Can it stop cancer from coming into your body? Can it stop your marriage from unraveling? Can it stop your kids from getting into things that are destructive? What fearful thing can it stop? What painful thing can it keep out of your home? Can it keep you from being anxious? Does it make fearful things disappear? What can money stop? What problem can it solve? All of the greatest burdens and problems, money cannot touch it. And that's why the wealthiest people in the world can be as burdened and broken and heartsick and weary as everyone else, because money cannot stop and solve our greatest problems. There is a person who does that. The person of Jesus Christ, who came into the world to solve our sin problem the great problem that keeps us from God and his grace. And he came to solve our sin problem that our lives might now grow in love and knowledge for him. And though problems come to us, we know that it cannot touch our treasure. It cannot 
diminish the joy of our eternity. It cannot keep us from being fruitful. It cannot stop the love of God. It cannot take away our peace. These are things that Jesus brings. He is the one that stands in between us and all that troubles us. And there is never a trouble that touches a child of God that has not passed through the grace of God. And though it touches us, it is covered with God's grace. Always. So we have talked about loving money. What does that mean, and why is that foolish? And we've seen something of the warnings that all of us should keep in mind with the prosperity that we enjoy. But money is necessary. Money can be used well and wisely. And so what is the healthy perspective toward money, toward wealth, toward possessions. And that's what verses 18 to 20 focus on. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting. So this is in contrast to verse 13. There is a grievous evil as he's describing all the warnings. Now he contrasts, there's a grievous evil out there in regards to possessions. Now he says, there's something good and fitting when it comes to our possessions. It is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God, for he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. And so when we want to answer the question, what is a a healthy perspective about our possessions? Uh, The answer is one that shouldn't surprise us. One that we can all give, even though we might use different terminology, and that is make sure that God is the main character in your possessions. It's the same answer of what do I do with all the fears in the world? Make the God the center of your fears. It's the same answer of how do I make family and marriage work? Make God the center of your marriage and family. Whatever the issue is in life, the answer always begins at the same place. What is the role of God in your life? Because God is creator, sustainer God from whom all things have come so that nothing can be used wisely and well if God is not the center of it. If he is not, then we have already veered off of wisdom and sorrow will always follow. And so God is to be the main character of our money and how we use it 
and how we pursue it and how we work and how we give, how we labor. In the verses we just read, 18 to 20, uh, we see this repeated theme. God has given everything connected with wealth. He repeats that several times. God has given our capacity to work. And God has given us any success we have at it. Even the people who think, no, I did this all myself. They're blind to what the reality is. God gave it to you whether you honor him or not. Our possessions come from God. Even our capacity to enjoy our possessions come from God. Look at chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Now he's back to what is evil. There is an evil I've seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. So this is an evil that's common to many people. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them. But a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. God cannot give the power to enjoy the things he's given us, not truly if he's not the center of it. It would be contradictory. And so God gives what we have, the ability to have it, our success in it, and even the ability to enjoy what we have. Those are all from God. So when we think about the right perspective about these things, and if God is at the center of it, then as his people we realize God is He's a good and generous God because all of it's from him. And so I, I look to him with thankfulness and look to him for wisdom and how everything is used because it does all come from God who is good and generous. And when we think of our position to this God who is good and generous, we are heirs with Christ. We are heirs of God who's good and generous. And so a proper perspective of our wealth and of our work, that which makes God the center of it, looks at God's character. He is good, wise, generous, and it looks at our position as God's children. We belong to him. We belong to the one who has all things. We're heirs, and so we don't need to be grasping, we don't need to be hoarding, we don't need to be fearful, because we are children of God who supplies. And we can look at our earning and our laboring and using with different eyes in the world where it's their responsibility to get it and protect it. And that changes our attitude on it. Seeing God as the main character in wealth removes many of the dangers then that the preacher has already mentioned to us. If our possessions are no longer an idol to us, we're going to be exalting God and satisfaction will be in our soul. 
We won't feel the need to hoard what we have. Because God is our supply. We can freely use it to bless others. We won't look to money as our security because we know, well, that's God's role. And we're setting things in their proper place. And although we know our possessions will all be left behind, we know our treasure is always ahead of us. And so we have a different perspective in how we enjoy and use what God has given us. When God is the main character of our labors, our work for what we have, we will take joy in that labor. Verse 18, behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat, drink, and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun. The theme of enjoyment is actually given even more than the theme of God gives. That's repeated several times, but what is also repeated in the verses is the theme of joy, enjoyment, and rejoicing. God wants us to enjoy what he has given us. Think of your plans for Christmas morning. You are shopping for children or spouse or grandchildren, and the things you pick out, you're imagining what their faces will be like when they open it up. You, you're giving gifts because you delight in the joy they will take from it. That's why we're glad our grandkids will be with us on Christmas. Because our children no longer jump up and go, wow, yay! They don't run across the room and give you big hugs. It's nice sweater. You know, we need that enthusiasm again about the gifts being opened. We delight in the joy people get in what we give them. Do we think God doesn't? God who loves us more than we love our children? God delights. He wants us to enjoy what we have. And when he is at the center of things, we actually can do that properly. Because we're not grasping and fearful and worried and, and greedy. When God is the main character in our labors, then even our labors become meaningful. I read of a woman who worked housekeeping in a hotel chain. Now, if you think a job that be, could be considered drudgery, cleaning all day, the same room over and over again. All the rooms are alike. So you clean this room because people left it a mess, not caring, not cleaning it up. And then she goes to the next room, which looks exactly the same, and the next one, and it never ends. It's Groundhog's Day for cleaning a hotel room. You never get out of it. And yet this woman, rather than seeing her job as the drudgery that was unending, she decided to view her job as, I am bringing joy to the guests who will stay here. And see, she would try to bring special touches into how she cleaned the room. If there were children there, she would fold up a towel so it looked like a little animal. Tiny things, but it was her perspective. 
Her job was not the drudgery I have to do again today. My responsibility is the joy and the care for the person who's going to stay in this room. If you're a mechanic, am I thankful when you fix my brakes so they work? It's just another job for you. I'm thankful. If you're fixing my HVAC system, you do it day after day, I'm glad there's heat. We have responsibilities in what we do, and it may be something we're doing over and over again, but we're fulfilling what serves the people around us, and it, it blesses them. And so we should take joy that we have a part in how God has fitted what should be the, the community of humanity, even if others don't view it that way. And so our joy is not just in getting our paycheck. Our joy is in fulfilling the role we have in the world and that we're doing it for the honor of God. And he sees what we do for his honor and he's pleased. And God is always there in our labors. He's always growing us in them. He's using us in them. He has kingdom work in whatever labor you have. If only the testimony and example that you do your best with integrity for God's sake, and that's enough for you. When God is the main character in our labors, we take joy in them. And when God is the main character of our possessions, we take joy in them. Verse 19. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. Our joy is not to be in the amount we have. It's to be in the goodness of God that we have it. And when we're thinking in terms of God being at the middle of it, it changes how we enjoy what we have. It's not... This is not quite enough. It turns into, how good is God? And so if today for lunch, you just have a simple ham sandwich. God, thank you for this sandwich. We can actually eat a simple sandwich with gladness. God's hearing that. I have no comprehension of what it's like to really be hungry. No, for me to be hungry is I ate four hours ago. And now I want more. I can't fit into my mind what it would be like to not even know where food is coming from. I've never existed without more than enough. Hundreds and hundreds of millions don't know. Even my father, when he was growing up in the Great Depression, said they never ate their fill of meat. You got a little bit if you got any at all. I don't even like ham sandwiches. 
to be honest, I never get ham sandwiches, so I don't know why I picked ham sandwiches. <laughs> but if you have pastrami, you take joy. Here's the goodness of God. The things that you have that may seem to be simple and old, if you can share them, what a grace is that? Yes, you can use this. Yes, you can have that. Yes, I have enough. That we can share what we have. Isn't that a good grace? Isn't that seeing God is in the middle of it? And so I have joy in sharing because that's how God is with me. Final thought of the message. When God is the main character in what we have, that our minds find rest with what we have. Verse 20. For he will not much remember the days of his life. He will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. What's preacher saying? In our labors, there's lots of disappointment, hurts, toil, burdens, abuses, loss. That's all part of the experience of laboring in the world. And that can wear on us. It can sour our hearts. But he's saying when God is at the center, we don't remember that much because we're occupied with God and we rejoice in him it's not that these things are not real and they don't hurt it's that what we have in God is so much greater that we don't much remember the cheating and the abuses and the hardship there's something we see much greater we see our savior his grace to us that is only increasing as we come closer to him. And so the preacher would ask us all this morning, what do you love? What do you labor for? Where is your joy? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you for the abundance of grace that is ours in Christ that spills over and touches absolutely everything. So help us to see that. Help us to have the right perspective of, of what we love, of what we're working for, of where is our joy. And for those who do not know you, may they see that in you, life will have its purpose and meaning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.